Um, let's, get, let's get going tonight on what is becoming a series, um, not really on the book of Acts as much as it is on the church. However, most of our work is going to be in the book of Acts, as you know. And I hope you're kind of working ahead of me a little bit, at least reading the rest of the chapter that we're in, maybe the next one. Under the understanding that we're not going verse by verse and we're not trying to do a Greek breakdown of everything, we're really just trying to hit these highlights of the church. I personally am, am undergoing an internal renaissance as I read these stories again because I'm trying to read them through fresh eyes and I'm trying not to read the story as if I know what's going to happen. That is not easy. And I'm trying to read the story to learn what it does for my journey, not copy their journey. Okay, because I spent a long time reading Acts trying to copy their journey, and I, you can't do it, but we thought that was a way to do it. You go, okay, let's look at the church, the book of Acts. How should we do this? You know my thoughts and feelings on that, and I, 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 I don't think you can do it, I, and I don't think it's even healthy any more than it's healthy for one church to look at a church across the street and go, we should do what they're doing. That's not necessarily true. Um, what, what the Holy Spirit does is not copy himself. He's, he doesn't play copycat. Uh, you are unique. You are the only you alive. You are the only you that's ever been. You are the only you that ever will be. That makes you fearfully and wonderfully made. That's how the Old Testament writers wrote that. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. It doesn't mean you're scared. It means that you are special. And what I mean by special is there's not two of you. That makes you special. That's the very definition of special. If there's not another one, well, it's unique. Well, that's you. So why would the Holy Spirit then do a bunch of cookie cutter stuff? If you've got all these unique individuals that have never lived before and that'll never live again, why in, the whole, why in the world would the Holy Spirit bother to just put them all in a collective and say, let's just repeat this over and over and over again? He wouldn't. So the church takes different iterations because you are different people. And then here's the real deep part of it. You are unique in that no one's ever been like you, but you are also unique in that you are not what you were yesterday. So the you that is unique is unique today which is mind-blowing because the you that's going to be alive tomorrow is going to be one day wiser than the you that's alive today. And that means that you continue to, pardon the word that church hates, but you continue to evolve uniquely into what you aren't. And you do that aided by the Holy Spirit. You do that with the Bible as one of your guides, not your only guide, let's be honest but one of your guides and the Holy Spirit holding your hand and walking you into and out of these issues. And then the unique you starts to shift because we're uniquely us, because we will be different tomorrow than we are today. We are taking a look at a church across time in the book of Acts, be it a short span of time, but across time and, and watching them evolve, watching them take shape. A word that we do like in Christianity is transform or transformation. And a word that really is sourced out of the Greek from the word metamorpho, metamorphosis, that we, we change into what we're supposed to be. And the church is undergoing a transformation. Last week we talked about transformed by Pentecost, started to talk about the Pentecostal experience. Um, I don't know that we did an adequate job. I never walk out of here and think we did an adequate job. And when I go back and listen to him, I always go, should have made that point, should have made that point, should have made that point. So I'll just tack this on and go, Pentecost wasn't an event in your past. It wasn't even an event in your individual past. It's an event that you're living in right now, this constant process of transformation. And that's why we titled tonight, Transformation Continued, because the church keeps transforming. They don't just transform at Pentecost, then they're done. And I was misinformed about Pentecost in some ways. 
because I had this understanding that the Pentecostal experience would transform me into this new tier of Christian that would have me in an upper echelon of Christians, sort of above the non-Pentecostal experience Christians. And though I would have subsequent refillings up there, that was a new level of Christianity. And, and the truth is, is that the church was transformed for the first time at Pentecost, but not for the last time. They just started this process of constant transformation, constant reinvention, constant recreation, constant resurrection. There's another Christian word, okay? So take that resurrection word and backtrack. If you're resurrected, what do you got to do first? You got to die. And so constant resurrections means constant dying. Now, I don't mean we're spiritually dying. You're not dying to sin over and over again. But if you're having recreation events in your life, your whole life's being recreated, then what did you do? You died to something. That's the only way you're able to recreate. So if the you that exists tomorrow is recreated in some ways, then the you that is alive today is dead tomorrow. That you is gone. And you leave behind a piece of you. Let the church do that when you study the book of Acts. Let them leave behind a piece of themselves to move forward. And let's don't leave them there as an object lesson. Let's grow with them. Let us together grow with that church. Okay, I said all of that. that um, that's sort of the way I, you know me, that's the way I introduce stuff. And then we read the scripture and we throw you a couple of thoughts and we go from there. I don't have a ton tonight in regards to this. I don't know what your transformation looks like. I don't know how long your transformation is. I don't know how intense it is, but I know you got one, whether you admit it or not, whether you're actively involved in it or not. And you may not have even stepped into the fullness of it yet, but you will. And so in some respects, I just, I want to read the text and give you some ideas about the early church. But in another respect, I want you to think about transformation. And when we get to the part where we feed back and we talk, Let's think about the ways in which we have transformed. And I mean you individually, maybe us as a group. What are the ways in which you have seen yourself go from what Paul might call glory to glory? And glory to glory then is the shedding off of something and then the recreation of something so that you aren't what you were yesterday, so that you are uniquely an individual. With all of that said, Church of the Book of Acts, as it progresses, is not full. They are not complete. They are not perfect. They don't do everything right. They don't get everything right. In some respects, they're throwing some stuff up against the wall and seeing what sticks. They're learning to follow the Spirit. They're not great at it, but they're learning. Gives us all hope, because we're not great at it either. But we're learning. We're all learning, no matter how long we've been doing this. And the early church gives us hope that that's okay. I want to take you to the end of chapter 2. I want to read the last seven verses of chapter 2. I know chapter 2 is where we were last week with Pentecost. This is the landing spot. Remember 3,000 people died at Sinai, giving of the law? 3,000 people saved at Pentecost, giving of the Spirit? Let's start the reading right in that ballpark. Verse 41. Those who gladly received His word, this is Peter. Peter's been preaching. They gladly received Peter's sermon. They were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And I think that's about where we stopped. But I wanted you to see how this chapter ends because it's kind of like this smooth landing. Like the church just sort of glides down into the end of chapter 2. And then we start to do individual stories in the book of Acts. The tone changes. But I don't want to change tone without really laying into this landing. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine 
and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And then fear came upon every soul. Fear is a bad translation for us English thinking people. We're going to talk about that whole English thinking mind in a moment. Um, the word would be far closer to our English word, awe, which is the root of our word awesome, which we like to use for a bevy of things, which is fine because it covers a bevy of topics. But we'll go ahead and drop it in right here because we think fear, we think scared. We equate fear with scared. The Greek New Testament writers most often equated fear with awe and even respect, especially when the awe was towards God. And so awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles, 44. Now all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They sold their possessions and their goods and they divided them among all as anyone had need. Now, you know, we're going to talk about this stuff. So not slowing down on everyone yet. Just lay it out. So they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You see what I mean? Sort of this soft landing. Like this just kind of glides down into this beautiful little nutshell of look at the church at the end of the Acts experience in Acts 2, the Pentecostal experience in Acts 2. Look at them. They're growing. They're signs and wonders. They're eating house to house. They're praising God. People are in awe. Everything seems great. And it's just sort of just kind of this coasts down into this beautiful little moment. Before we comment on that, there's one thing I want to hit first, and we'll hit it again in a moment. And that's that thought that signs and wonders were coming out of their hands. This has caused a lot of people to believe that this is sort of the moment that we should point at in the church and go see what we ought to see is signs and wonders. And I think signs and wonders are awesome. I think if God wants to do signs and wonders, I'd like to see the sign and I will be in awe at the wonder of it all. But I also don't think they thought of signs and wonders the way we think they thought of signs and wonders. We see them with signs and wonders and we think the church was a walking miracle fest. That everywhere the church went, people were coming out of graves, standing up and running around, healed, that had been lame before. Cancers were falling off. Tumors were falling off. Everywhere you walked, everywhere you went, signs and wonders. And it was because these men were so close to God. They were covered in the anointing. They had all stayed alone with, with Jesus in the realm of the Spirit. The Holy Ghost dripped off their sermons. And yet, here's how Peter felt. Same chapter, verse 22. This is in the middle of his sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. To them, miracles, wonders, and signs came through Jesus from God. They didn't come through Peter. And Acts 3 and 4 will be your indication of that, as we're going to get into a story where Peter and John go to the temple and a lame man jumps up and walks. And everyone falls down and starts worshiping Peter. And Peter goes, whoa, no, get up. I'm just a guy. I, I, I don't have this power. And so what you'll find is that the early church didn't look at signs and wonders, I think, the way we think they did. They, like they were parceling them out like candy because they had spent so much time with the Lord. They were equally in awe of whatever signs and wonders were coming out of them. And they knew they didn't have anything to do with it. And my 
only issue with signs and wonders in the church is that what I've seen of signs and wonders almost always devolves into an individual teaching everybody else how they too could have signs and wonders if they did X, Y, Z. And immediately I'm off the train because I don't see the early church doing that at all. And I don't, and I'm not saying that because we got to copy everything the early church did. But when they talk about signs and wonders, they point to Jesus and they say, God did it. And when you try to step them up onto a pedestal or later in the book of Acts, you offer a money for it, which a guy does to Peter. He walks up to Peter and goes, how much money would it take for me to do that? And Peter goes, Peter rebukes him and goes, you don't have any idea what you're talking about. That isn't how this works. And yet we sort of treat signs and wonders that way. Like you could buy them with fasting. You can buy them with prayer. You can buy them with church attendance. You, and the, the reason why the church isn't powerful is because we're not paying that price. And, the, and no, it, has, it didn't have anything to do with that with Peter. So why does it have to do with that with us? So I did want to point that one out. Signs and wonders, awesome, powerful. God can do whatever God wants to do. But we are not the conduit because God found a clean pipe. I've, I taught it that way. You know, it's like there's water flowing through the pipes, but if it's clogged up with sin and flesh and filth, well, the Holy Spirit can't move through that pipe. So there's junk we got to clean out. And so you live in that environment, it's a constant cleaning. There's because you're never going to be clean enough. There's constant cleaning, constant cleaning. And we, we were undergoing constant revivals to try to constantly clean to get God to do something we believed he would only do if he could find clean vessels. It's why the message of grace was so liberating, because for the first time in my life, I was convinced I was a clean vessel. It's like God cleans you. It's his work in cleaning you rather than you go clean yourself so God can use you. That's like taking a shower so you can take a bath. It's like, get in here where God can clean you up, but before you do, go take a shower. Clean yourself up so God can clean you up. Either he does it or he doesn't do it. And those signs and wonders are either his or they're mine. And so they're his. At least that's what the early church believed in. We have no reason to believe otherwise. This is often seen as the idyllic moment in church formation. We love the point at the church at the end of Acts 2 and go, right there. That's the kind of church we want to be. I think it should be seen as merely the first step in a continuing transformation rather than the apex moment of the early church, which is kind of what we do with Pentecost. Like, man, that church right here. They're full of the Holy Ghost. 3,000 people are saved. The last seven verses of the book of Acts tell you the story. They just sort of glide into it. And then we start to get these individual stories. But this is the apex of where the church is and I think it's actually the first step of where the church is. And to prove that, I want to look at what they have. But here's something we don't like to talk about. I want to look at what they lack. Because you're only in Acts 2, and there's 28 chapters. Now, about half of it's going to be eat up with the Apostle Paul, granted. Which is why we probably won't do a verse-by-verse -verse expose of the book of Acts. Because I'm not really here to do a Pauline bio. So we aren't going to cover the whole book. But... We're at least going to get up to him and some of the things that the Lord did through him because he's one of the great minds of the early church and certainly the great formulator of theology and doctrine. We'll get into that. Um, but I want to look at some things that they have, and I just want to use these seven verses. And then we're going to look at some things they don't have, and we're going to use the seven verses, and we're going to go beyond the seven verses. All right? So that's why I say tonight might be a little brief because that's it. We'll take you to one more Pauline verse to try and shore up some ideas. Um, 
And then I want to hear what transformation looks like to you. I've asked you before what church looks like to you and what church means to you. I want to kind of hear what transformation means to you and what it has meant in your life. So this is part history lesson, granted, not your typical sermon, part history lesson about early church history. And it's also one of those things that helps us to better formulate an idea of what that early church looked like so that we can dispense of some of the foolishness that sometimes gets attributed to the early church. And, and if we could do that, we might get rid of all of these ideas that contribute to why we're not the church we ought to be. You know, that kind of idea. Let's be more like them. Okay, well, let's find out what they were first, all right? Number one, what they have. And I even give you the verse reference on each one so that you can go back and look at it for yourself. But according to verse 42, there was four things, and you could call these four sort of pillars, four foundation stones. There's four corners to a room, so maybe these are the four foundation stones of the way the early church functioned. And this was verse 42, said there was teaching, they taught the apostles' doctrine, they had fellowship, they broke bread, and they prayed. So when the early church gathered, this is what the meeting looked like. We do not have a written transcript of a first century Christian worship service. That would be an archaeological gold mine. If we could find a transcript and went, we all met at Peter's house, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. Um, part of the reason we don't is because they didn't write that way. That's us writing menus and recipes and committee meeting notes. They didn't write that way. But had we found that... it. According to Acts 2, it would have looked something like this. Somebody teaches the apostles' doctrine. I want to ask you this. How deep is the apostles' doctrine? Well, Pentecost just happened at the top of the chapter. Where are we? Bottom of the chapter. Jesus ascended 10 days ago. Jesus died on the cross 50 days ago. Or 53 days ago. He raised from the dead 50 days ago. Our doctrine is predominantly Genesis to Malachi with a bunch of Jesus thrown in. And the stuff we're starting to learn by the Holy Spirit. So do the apostles have this really tight formulated doctrine? I, I think the answer is probably no. They don't have this tight formulated doctrine. So teaching the apostles doctrine was an adventure. It means to me that when they sat down to teach, there was something new happening all the time. A lot of questions, a lot of wrestlings, a lot of scriptures being thrown out there. This wasn't a place where people walked in and figured it all out. This is a place where people walked in and wrestled it all out. So the apostles' doctrines, they, we don't have Paul yet. You don't have Galatians and Ephesians and Romans. You're not sitting here going, what's the identity of the believer in Christ? We don't have that stuff. And so what we do have is the teachings that they heard from Jesus, that what they're learning through the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is pretty rudimentary in the early church, but it's consistent. So they believe that when they got together, they ought to talk scripture. They believe that when they got together, they ought to talk about Jesus. I agree. When we get together, we ought to discuss the word. We ought to talk about Jesus. They also believe that fellowship was key, that they were supposed to see each other. They were supposed to touch each other. They were supposed to laugh with each other. They were supposed to cry with each other. This gets codified as Paul writes Romans and goes, laugh with those who laugh, cry with those who cry, suffer with those who suffer. Where do you learn that? That's the fellowship of your family. That's how, you, that's how you interact with people that you love. And they broke bread together and they prayed. And breaking bread meant that they were always sharing meals. It probably also meant that they were starting to understand communion, which was the ceremony that Jesus gave them and then repeated for them in the resurrection, like a road of Emmaus experience, and they prayed. And so we really haven't left this stuff in 2,000 years. We've just sort of rounded it out a little bit. 
I think we've kind of transformed teaching into preaching. Teach, preach. In some circles, teaching is like bemoaned versus preaching. And that's silly because preaching is just really most of the time defined as more emotional, louder, extemporaneous. You move around a lot. You spit on the front row. (laughs) Teaching is calm, controlled. My Pentecostal days, no Pentecostals taught. They all preached. Teachers were for those other people that thought they were saved. Um, Fellowship um, really becomes an event within the church sometimes rather than why we go to church. And so I think, I think we're starting to, we're seeing that reversed a little bit in our group, which I really dig. I think fellowship is, well, it's a fourth of what they were doing. And so I think it's an important part of what we do. Breaking of bread and prayer. These almost go together in, in some, in some ways, because it's what you do when you break bread is prayer. But prayer was a part of that early church. It's something that they had. Here's another one. We don't stay here too long because I already talked about it. Verse 43, what they had was signs and wonders and the signs and wonders brought awe. And again, this wasn't something they, they hyped up. It wasn't something they worked towards. Guys, we're in chapter two. They got the Holy Ghost at the top of chapter two. It's not like we've had years and years and years of figuring out how to do wonders and signs. They haven't. This stuff's just automatically happening. As it happens, they give God the glory for it and the praise for it. And it's signs and wonders that cause people to believe in God um, in an awesome way. I want to say this, and I want you to take this with a grain of salt, and I only want you to do with it whatever you want to do with it. All right? So I'm telling you that up front. I personally believe that Jesus came along doing signs, wonders, and miracles for Israel. And when he got around Gentile environments, most of the time he could just talk and they would believe. And the reason for that is that Israel cut their spiritual faith teeth on God doing physical things. So when he was around Israelites, and the great example is John 4, when he goes to the Samaritan village and everyone believes. And then he goes to a nobleman's house in Judea and no one believes. And Jesus, in stark contrast, goes, you people will not believe unless you see a miracle. You people will not believe unless you see a miracle. What people? the Jewish people that he's with. Now, why, why was it the Samaritans believe I didn't do anything? You Jews won't believe unless I do things. And you see this signs, wonders, and miracles as an, as an evidence to Israel. As the message gets to the Gentile world, we start to see them decrease a little bit, signs, wonders, and miracles. And again, you take this with a grain of salt. My personal belief is that what the Holy Spirit is promising us under the new covenant is the life of the everlasting one, what the Holy Spirit promises under the old covenant is that he is the God that healeth thee and he's the God that did miracles for Israel. And so I don't take away God's ability to do the signs, wonders, and the miraculous. But in a Christian environment in which we are not focused on the physical, but we are focused on the spiritual, not on the temporal, but the eternal, what I have found is that when you get in an environment where all people see are the natural, they start to walk by sight, not by faith. And so, because I've been in environments of deliverance where everybody, where demons are in everything. Like everybody goes, there's demons everywhere. And they're always praying about it and they're always casting them out and they're always having seances. And this is this group of people walks so by sight that it has to come down to how you dress, how you talk, how you act, the songs you sing. Rather than it being a faith walk, it becomes a sight walk. Why? Because the more they start to sight the things in the spirit, the less they start to believe for the internal and start to believe everything has to manifest naturally. Everything has to manifest naturally. Um, my, My take on that is that God can do whatever he wants with signs, wonders, and miracles, but I don't put my faith in signs, wonders, and miracles. I don't think the early church does either. And I think as the church begins to grow and expand, there becomes more of an internalization of all of these things in the spirit. Okay, I'll leave that alone. Some of that you take or you don't. 
whatever. Number three, what they had was one body of believers that mutually agreed. Look at this one. This is really popular. This would be, this would go over real big if we started a church and we did number three. One body of believers that mutually agreed to sell all of their property and all of their position, possessions and live communally. And so they sold their houses and their properties and their donkeys and their chariots and their carts and their weapons and everything they had. And they put all of the money into one communal pot and they lived out of that. And whatever needs you had, whatever issues you had, the body of believers. And notice it's one body of believers. There's not four churches in Jerusalem. There's just one group of Christians that are moving around house to house. So the early church takes no regard for flavor, for musical style, for whether you like so-and-so's teaching. It's just everybody together in the same spot and everybody putting all their stuff into one pot and then communally living out of that. This is going to last for less than two chapters in the book of Acts, this right here, before the church decides. Now, I don't want to get too deep into what I think is going on here. We'll save that for Ananias and Sapphira because that's coming up. But I do believe some of this was context-driven. I do, I do believe it was eschatologically driven as well as to why they were living that way. But I just want to show you what they had, all right? You can do what you want with it. Um, and what we want to do with it in the modern church is ignore it. Okay, just, just frankly. So I always think people, I always kind of laugh when people tell me they want to be the church of the book of Acts. Because not only do I say pick your chapter, I also say when you pick your chapter, I promise you you're going to cut a few lines out. You want line item veto whenever you get a hold of this bill and you want to go no, no, yes. And so one of the things you're going to strike, I don't even have to ask you, but one of the things you're going to strike is number three. You're going to get rid of communal living because you want your own stuff. And all those lazy bums that didn't earn it can't have my stuff because that, that's the mentality of a lot of people. And if you don't think so, just get on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> number four. They attended temple. I put Judaism in parentheses because that's what temple was. Okay. They attended temple. And here's another one we wouldn't like. Imagine if we started this at our church. You attend every single day, which was way more than they were doing under Judaism, by the way. Nobody attended temple every single day. But the early church was so excited of what was going on that they, keep, they run into temple every day. Here's the interesting thing. That temple falls down in less than 40 years. That temple had no hope for Christianity. One of the last things Jesus said before he goes to the cross is, I leave your house to you desolate. Not one stone's going to be left unturned, he said, of the temple. And he didn't just mean the building, he meant the system. You're not going to need it because you're not going to need the holy place. And you're not going to need the altar of incense. And you're not going to need the brazen altar. You're not going to be sacrificing lambs. Why is the early church running to temple? And why are they going every day? So some of what they have is hyper-Judaism. They are still holding on to what they had. They've added Messiah to what they had. And they are eager beavers, man. They are excited. Let's do this every day. In some ways, they're like new converts in this because they are new converts to this. And it's every day, every day, every day. And they're kind of filtering in Judaism, not just filtering in. They're taking their Judaism and they're putting the, the Jesus on top of it. They're putting that Messiah on top of it. They're doing that every day. Number five, what they have. They ate meals from house to house. This is verse 46. This is also the same as the attended temple every day. Uh, this means that the church was moving house to house. Um, some people are trying to copy this with what's called organic church today, which is sort of church that just sort of springs out of people coming together. I actually think church springing out of people coming together is a great idea. Um, but sometimes organic church movements tend to think that the church is better 
if they only meet in houses, that some, you lose something when you start to meet in buildings or whatever. Um, we don't really get evidence of that in Acts 2. I'm just trying to be honest. We, we, we get evidence that they went house to house because they loved each other and because they didn't have a building. And evidence that they didn't have a building is they kept going to temple, which was their people's building. And once the only way they, you know what gets, why they quit going to temple? Because they get kicked out. Because <laughs> they keep bringing Jesus into temple and these two systems don't live together. It's oil and water. You can't live in a system of performance and a system of finished work. You come in with your Jesus and your finished work stuff, that temple's going to get rid of you. And that's exactly what happens. And so at this point, they're getting house to house, they're eating meals together. And then number six, they praised God for the growth they were seeing. They considered it a direct work of the Lord. Now I put these two together. I know I didn't have to, but I did. They praised God because that's how verse 47 starts, which could be a version of praise and worship. If you need praise and worship as a evidence in the early church, maybe you get it in verse 47, but what you definitely get is that they considered it a direct work of the Lord because the chapter ends with the Lord added to the church daily, those that should be saved. Who did the adding? The Lord. Do you notice what you do not get right here? Now I know I'm not on what they don't have, but I just want to point this one out. They don't have a real good, they don't have any idea of how to build their church. Like they don't come together and like teach evangelism and they're not talking about how to lead people to Christ. They're letting what they do win people. So what are they doing? Well, they're just getting together, talking about Jesus and having fun and breaking bread and praying together. And out of that comes signs and wonders and everybody's in awe and they, and they live communally and go to temple every day, and they're running house to house, giving God glory, and whoever likes it, likes it. People that like it, follow them. People that don't like it, don't follow them. At this point, that's their whole evangelism. It's like, we just do our thing. Now, there's a little bit of an appeal to let's do our thing, because let's do our thing is uh, we don't have to worry about others on the outside. What we know is that that's not going to be enough. The church is going to grow dissatisfied with that, as we should, because it just simply becomes our little party. When we start to realize the power of what we have, we know we need to get that out to someone else. So that brings us to what they lack. I only put a few up. They lack a lot, but I, don't want to, I just want to show you what you can see pretty easily. What they lack, number one, they lack Gentiles. This is an entirely Jewish church in Acts chapter 2. It takes at least three and a half years to have a single non-Jewish convert. Let me give you a little, Bible, little church history, Bible study, eschatology lesson, why I say three and a half years. Because I think Daniel's 70th week prophecy happens in the ministry of Jesus. I think it's where we get that Jesus preached three and a half years. How many of you have heard that your whole life? Jesus was on the earth three and a half years. His ministry was three and a half years long. Where did we come up with that number? Because Daniel said in the middle of the 70th week of prophecy, he'll be cut off. And so we have Jesus dying. And three and a half years after that, Stephen is stoned to death. And I think that's the end of the Jewish time clock. When Judaism kills its first Christian martyr not named Jesus, is Stephen stoned to death. That period takes about three and a half years from the resurrection to the death of Stephen. When Stephen dies, the church scatters from Jerusalem and runs. And they start winning people on their way out. And they, so they, they stay in Jerusalem for at least three and a half years. So what does the church not have? Any outside blood. 
So if you're idyllic about Acts 2, go, boy, that's the church we need. You might be saying, we need a church that looks like me. We need a church where everybody thinks like I think. Everybody has my skin tone. Everybody has my income. Everybody has my way of living. Everybody goes to my, flies my flag. The early church can't live in Acts 2. And neither can we. Because you can't survive with just people that look like you. You can't survive with people that agree with you. You'll become lazy. You'll become useless. If you don't have a little friction and you don't have a little expansion, you don't grow. You don't grow psychologically. You don't grow intellectually. You don't grow spiritually. I don't mean you need to be at constant war. No one needs the stress level of constant conflict, constant battle. You die young if you're a constant warrior. And it'll take it out of you spiritually too. So for those who like to live on message boards and comment walls and fight everybody on text and scripture, you're sucking the life out of your Christianity. You'll only last so long. Conversely, for those of you that never talk about anything with anyone because you're afraid someone will disagree with you and you hate conflict, step outside your box once in a while and take a chance. Because if you don't at least defend something once in a while, you don't know what you believe and you don't know why you believe it and you don't want to just be on an island with a bunch of people in your room that all look like you, act like you, think like you, laugh like you, cry with you. That's fun for a while and you need a bunch of that. That's healthy in some respects. You need some people that are like that, but you need a few that you really got to work with. And if the church had its way, I think they were just pumped to just run around house to house in Acts 2 and eat at each other's house and praise God and let God do what he wants to do. But it's not going to last very long. What they don't have is a little bit outside blood. And you can't even imagine how big this is for a Jewish thinking early church. Gentiles, a bunch of unclean, heathen dogs, idol worshipers. You can't imagine the filth these people live and the way they... This is the thought process. Because that's Peter in Acts 10 when he finally sees that sheet full of animals and he goes, I don't eat anything unclean. And God goes, don't ever call unclean what I call clean. That's Acts 10, by the way, before Peter ever figures out he's supposed to preach to Gentiles. So that's what the Acts 2 church lacks. Number two, they lack the development of leaders and workers. We know this because the 12 disciples do everything until at least Acts 6. Nobody else teaches, nobody else sings, nobody else testifies, nobody else prays out loud, nobody else evangelizes, nobody else witnesses, nobody else reads scripture. The 12 do everything. So in the early church, no development of the gifts, no development of your own talents, nobody being called to ministry. It takes four more chapters before they decide to hire, to to pray for a few deacons. We don't get deacons till Acts 6. And so the early church is not only a segment of people who all agree with each other, they're a segment of people who all agree that there's a few people right and the rest of us are just going to let them do everything. And the church can't grow. The church, the church is only going to grow to the extent it allows you to use your gift. And I didn't mean grow numerically. I mean grow spiritually. They'll grow spiritually and people are allowed to use their gifts. Number three, uh, what they lacked was the creeds of Christianity as we know them. For instance, the Trinity, it took 300 plus years for the church to develop its baseline doctrine. We don't get the Nicene Creed until the late 4th century, which means that we don't have a real development of the Trinity. We don't have a real understanding. We don't have a real formulated um, doctrine of the virgin birth. 
or a formulated doctrine of spirit baptism or a formulated doctrine of the return of Christ. We spent about three centuries working on all of that. The church really has nothing. I, I hit that a little bit when I said there are just talking apostles' doctrines just all over the place. It's sort of just personal experience. And so that tells me that they don't have it all figured out at the end of Acts 28. They do not have the stuff we actually consider pretty baseline. You, if you went back in the time machine to the church of 100, you wouldn't know squat that was going on. You, and I don't mean you couldn't speak their language. Let's assume you could. You still wouldn't understand much of what was going on. And there's a lot of battles going on for what doctrine's going to win out and what's going to, what's going to survive. And it took a few hundred years to really land in that place. And then number four, here's another thing that they lacked. This is one that I just personally like to talk about. Kind of don't like to talk about it because it's kind of painful. It's tough, but I like to talk about it because we need to. The New Testament closes with no booming indictment against slavery, no clear path for women's rights. I just picked two. You could pick more. These are pretty big, by the way. It took centuries and many twists and turns to get there. The foundation was laid. So how can the early church not cover stuff like this? Because the early church is in a continual transformation. And if the early church is in a continual transformation, we as well are in a continual transformation. We don't have it all figured out. They didn't have it all figured out. Guys, a couple of these took like 1,900, 2,000 years, and, and we're actually still not real good with all of them. And you could throw a few more in there that we're just now starting to fight about, wrestle with, and argue over. And there's always been people quoting scriptures. I just did a DDP today, 1 Timothy 6. If you've not read 1 Timothy 6 in a while, read the first two verses and get ready to puke. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, hey, slaves, pay attention to your masters and do what you're told. And if your master's a believer, even better, because you make his salvation look good if you do what you're told to do. And that garbage got preached as gospel in the American pulpit for hundreds of years in support of slavery. And now we can't read it with a straight face. We can't read it without our stomach turning. And we're in the Bible when we read it. So don't give me here a scripture, there a scripture, everywhere a scripture, scripture. When you want to defend what you say is some sort of reality because the early church was forming their doctrine. They're rejecting outsiders. They don't have a codified doctrine. It took hundreds of years to get to that place in some places. It took us a couple thousand years to get to a landing spot where we don't have to sit and fight anymore in church about whether or not slavery is right. I don't know anybody that defends such a foolish doctrine. And yet a couple hundred years ago, they're popping out scriptures. Go and see what, what should be done. And so that, that leads me to two thoughts. First of all, I want to give you what I've, and you've, you've had, I've used this before, but we'll use it again. I want to give you what I call the song of the New Testament, Galatians 3.28. So for every scripture Paul has that he goes, hey, slaves, do your thing. Women, shut your mouth. For all of those, and man, he's got them. He's got this. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Yay, Paul. Way to go. That's your music, baby. Sing that song. Sing that song when you're getting sidetracked on all these other little things. Go back to that music. And that's what I do. So I go back to that music. And I go, yeah, he's got a lot of issues. There's a lot of stuff. There's a few things here and there. I go, I'm not going to follow that. 
But you know what I can live with? In Christ, distinctions are gone. And we're one in Christ. We're not two, we're not 10, we're not 100, we're not 1,000. In a way, we're not one as long as we've got all these divisions. In a very real way, we're not one. Then that lands me here. I got a little ahead of myself with that last little soliloquy. So here it is. To be described as Bible-believing is open to a wide range of interpretations. I say this because there's some people who brag about we are a Bible-believing church. And I mean they stake their whole Christianity on it. Okay, so whether you know it or not, you have a set of lenses in your spiritual glasses when you read the text, even when you think you don't. Now, I want to pause here for a minute. I want to say this. You have a set of lenses, whether you think you do or not, because you don't speak classic Greek and you don't speak classic Hebrew. And you're reading an English translation that's been developed over thousands of years. So before you even brag about Bible believing, just realize that you're a translation believer. If you can start there, then you can admit that you got at least two lenses in your glasses and they're called English. And the Bible wasn't written that way. All right? You can start there. And then you, you got more lenses than you realize because you're not a scholar of Greek. You're not a scholar of Hebrew. You don't know the context of first century. You probably know almost nothing about Jewish history outside of maybe a little temple ideas and some tabernacle stuff. And you can quote six or eight of the Ten Commandments. And you got a couple of the Torah laws outlined here and there. And yet we're coming in here like we've got some sort of genius level understanding of the Bible and throwing out scriptures about who God is and what God is. All of the while, while we're filtering it through a ton of lenses, and some of them are called American lenses, and some of them are called male lenses, and female lenses, and youth lenses, and Pentecostal lenses, and, and until we can all be in the same room looking at the same verse with eight different interpretations. And the good news is, none of us are disciples of the Bible. The Bible didn't save you. You believe in a resurrected Jesus. You are a follower of Christ. You are not a follower of the Bible. The Bible is a guide and it is beautiful and I love it and I read it a lot because it shows me people's journey to God and what he looked like through their eyes and it shows me Jesus, the centerpiece of my faith. But I don't stop there. I don't slam its book closed because if I did, I might still have some of the problems the church had when they ended Acts 28. But because we've kept listening to the Spirit, we've gotten better. We have transformation that continues because we kept listening to the Spirit. It's better to wrestle with the text. Be transformed with the text. Be open to what the text might say. It, the text, does not save you. It simply describes the journey. Like the Church of Acts, under constant transformation, we are always changing and we are always growing. Let's land right there. Let's pray. And when we pray these in this little series on the church, we're not praying, oh, thanks for showing us, so we'll be better. We're asking, what can we learn? What can we learn about what we heard that helps aid in our constant transformation? Here's what I want you to ask the Spirit. Spirit, what areas have I stopped allowing you to transform me? Because I've already got answers. I want to put those in front of you tonight in Jesus' name. Let's all just do that. You don't even have to know what they are. That's just a noble prayer, I think, to say to the Father. Father, 
whatever areas I've stopped transforming, I've stopped allowing you to transform me. I want it to be a work of your spirit. Show me through Jesus. Not through society, not through ideology, not through social argument. Throw me, show me through Jesus. Let me see it in Christ. If I don't see it in Christ, I can't follow it. But if I see it in Christ, I'm open to transformation. That's constant transformation. That's the church in Jesus' name. Amen.